Yeah? Good. Excellent. Good to go. Right. So, as I'm sure you all know, I'm a Hollywood actor. Yeah. I am. <laughs> I can tell from your faces that there may be uh, one or two of you who are doubting this claim. <laughs> really? You're not convinced I am? Well, it's not that big a deal, really. Uh, I suppose you're wondering what I've been in. Well, hang on. Let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. Uh, there's a matter of you doubting me. Let's deal with that. Now, I guess you need some evidence. So, uh, let's start with the fact that at the tender age of 12, I played a role that most actors would give their eye teeth for. It was Jacob, the father of Joseph, in my middle school play. It was amazing. I was amazing. I was the most convincing 12-year-old father of nations seen by Christchurch Middle School in the whole of that year. So films, you ask. Let me, let me talk to you about films. Twelve Years a Slave. The Lord of the Rings Trilogy. Gosford Park. Finding Nemo. House of Flying Daggers. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I was in almost none of them. Well, none of them. But I could have been. I could have been in them. All it would have taken was for my agent to give me the call. If I had an agent. And if I'd passed an audition. And if I'd been willing to abandon my wife and children and live around the world. And if I'd taken some acting classes. And given up my job. But apart from that, apart from those few things star material right here. You see, James Dean, Jimmy Cagney, Brad Pitt, Audrey Hepburn, Leonardo DiCaprio, eh? Eh? I know all of their names. (laughs) You don't believe me? Look, James Dean, Jimmy Cagney, Brad Pitt, Audrey Hepburn, and Leonardo DiCaprio. See? Hollywood actor, me. The main thing I do to make sure I'm a Hollywood actor is to think about acting at least once every month. This is important, this. Don't think it just happens. I confess with my mouth and I believe deep, deep down that I'm a Hollywood actor. And that's the real trick. So, any day now, you'll see me on that big screen, I'm certain of it, and that's what all these actors, directors and producers are waiting for. I'm going to walk through that door and that will be it. So, I'm going to keep reading those internet movie database pages on the web. I'm going to keep watching those films and TV series because I know I'm a Hollywood actor. And you can be too. Just be like me. That's it. And you'll be just as much exactly as much a Hollywood actor as I am. You're welcome. (laughs) Right. Anyway, after uh, that performance, you can probably tell why I won't be giving up the day job anytime soon. Am I an actor? Does my faith in all that stuff make me an actor? Does it? What would it take for me actually to be a Hollywood actor? Thank you. Miracle. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not going to make it as an actor simply by going through the motions in my bedroom, though I'm sure Sharon would find that very entertaining. I need to be in a Hollywood production. I need to live the Hollywood life. So, what does it take for us to know that we're Christians? How can the world see that we're the real thing and not just some kind of wannabe Christian? Let's turn to the Word of God because that's where we'll find the answer and prepare to be challenged. Father God, we come in submission to you, to your grace, to your wisdom. And we ask that we, as we look at the word that you've given us together, that you will cause it to live in our hearts and to change us. Amen. Amen. So James 2. James 2, 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this little section of scripture has been involved in a considerable amount of controversy over the years. Martin Luther famously called James an epistle of straw. He thought that the book didn't contain enough gospel. He much preferred the apostle Paul. Paul who in Romans says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Romans 3.28. So Paul, Paul was firmly convinced, rightly convinced, that salvation depends on our faith in Christ, not upon any works we do. So when James comes along uh, with his emphasis on works, Martin Luther looks at this letter and says, on the face of it, there's very little gospel here. There's little that sets people free. Now, back in his day, uh, Luther hated the fact that priests were taking money from people <clears throat> in return for a promise that that person or the person's deceased loved ones would face less punishment as a result. This was the doctrine, the idea known as indulgences. The church at the time, mainly the Church of Rome, believed that all sin was going to be punished either in this life or the next. 
And if it was in the next, it was in a state or a place that was called purgatory. And buying this indulgence was supposed to reduce that punishment. You pay money to the priest, you get to heaven quicker. That's the basic principle. And obviously it was rife with abuse. So Luther couldn't stand bondage to the law, particularly to rules and regulations created by men. And he had no time for people who were profiting from someone else's fear of punishment. And he saw in the New Testament the truth that the only way to God was through faith in Christ. And meanwhile, we've got James saying things like, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works? So you can see why Luther thought of James as a less important letter. And I think there's a salutary lesson for us here. Now, Martin Luther was the firebrand that God used to ignite an amazing revival, which we know as a Reformation. It was a revival that brought thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out from bondage to the law and into grace. And yet, in relation to James, it looks like he was mistaken. So if Luther, such an incredible servant of God and agent of change in the world, if Luther can be wrong in his interpretation of Scripture, perhaps this teaches us that we should stay humble as we handle the Word of God. Not necessarily be certain that our interpretation is the right one. And so, humbly, I'm going to beg to disagree with Luther. Because I think James is saying something both simple and profound here. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if you, do you remember back in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 27, James has said this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what's James's heart here? He's looking for true religion, true faith. Not the faith of the Pharisees who said if you keep these 888 rules until sundown, you're a righteous man. Not that kind of faith. A pure faith. A faith that must inevitably be demonstrated <coughs> by action. But what sort of a faith was it that Jesus had? Was it a faith of sitting round, pondering intellectual and theological questions? Or was it a faith of finding the sick and healing them? Going to the most undesirable people in society and showing them God loved them? finding a woman caught in the act of adultery, which was a crime punishable by death in those days, and saying to her, I do not condemn you. Giving up his life in a horrific, agonising death to save us. So James is calling for a pure faith, a pure religion. As Keith said a few weeks ago, if we're all talk and no trousers, that isn't going to cut it for James. But it's a sting, isn't it? James would say, unflinchingly, Fred, it's been five years since you say you gave your life to Christ. And in all that time, I haven't seen a single piece of ever evidence that corroborates your story. You want to take a look at your life, Fred? Because I've got some bad news for you, mate. That's smart. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? 
You know the saying, if being a Christian was a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So let's just take a brief pause here, because if you started to ask yourself the same question, you're feeling guilty, stop. Guilt is not from God. And it's not the way the Holy Spirit operates. Guilt was what drove the Pharisees, those religious leaders back in Jesus' day, who worked hard to buy their righteousness. So guilt may motivate us to do good deeds, but James isn't saying that those works that come out of guilt will save you. And I think this may be where the confusion lay. The tension between the faith emphasis of Paul and the works emphasis of James. They're actually looking at two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If I were to show you a black and white embossed picture of the Queen's head, you could tell me probably that it was from a coin. But until I show you the other side, you wouldn't be able to tell me whether it was a one pound coin or a two pence piece. And in the same way, if I show you some works, some good stuff I did, you can't necessarily tell by looking whether the works come out of guilt or out of obedience, out of love. So our life can be like a coin. But is it like a two-pence coin, guilt one side and works the other? Or like a one-pound coin, faith one side and works the other? In John 14, 15, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That sequence is really important. From love to obedience. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. If we love Jesus, then we will also love our neighbours as ourselves. We will treat people the way we want to be treated. We will care for each other, see needs and meet them. Genuinely help people in dire circumstances. And not not because we're looking for a reward or trying to level up our righteousness. No, Jesus is our role model, our hero, and we just do what he would do because, because of our love, because of our gratitude towards him, because we're thankful of how we've been saved. And if that's not happening, we probably need to ask ourselves, why not? It's tough stuff, this, isn't it? And so James goes on to say, verses 16 and 17, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Hey Jim, I see you've broken your arm. Be better. (laughs) Christina, you're running low on money. Oh, may your bank account fill up again. George, your father just died. That's sad. Be comforted. No, no, no. How about, Jim, you broke your arm. That's pretty inconvenient. Can I come around and do some washing up for you? Christina, I don't want to embarrass you, but I heard things were tight. We don't have much, but would you like to come around for a meal? George, I'm so sorry. You must miss your father terribly. He was a great guy. Maybe proceed to tell George some story about his father, a happy memory, or just be there with him. Now, this is such a basic, fundamental principle of the gospel. Meeting needs, sharing, bringing people into our lives, our homes, being warm, 
and loving. And Jesus covered this topic himself, this tension between faith and works, very neatly. Let's have a look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. This is Jesus talking during his famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Incidentally, given how much of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is recorded, I think we can safely assume that it went on for hours. And if our objective here is to see Christ as our leader, our example, well, I hope those seats are comfortable, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) You see, those who do the will of the Father, they're the ones who are saved, who enter the kingdom of heaven, because those who are truly saved want to do the Father's will. They're not glory hounds spouting so-called prophecies because they secretly enjoy the kudos and attention it gives them. A life of humility and obedience. It's difficult, isn't it? It's not what our human nature, not what our flesh wants to do. I'm going to skip to uh, verse 19 of chapter 2, James. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right, you believe that God is one. We know that this letter is addressed to Jews amongst others. Right at the start, Jews are specifically mentioned, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And for Jews, this expression, God is one, has quite a special meaning, even today. Because it refers back to a passage of scripture from the Old Testament known as the Shema. The Shema. The Shema. Do we have have any speakers of ancient Hebrew in the house today? (laughs) We're just going to go. We're just going to go with Shema. All right. So Shema is the Hebrew word for here. And it's particularly used to refer to Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4, which is just before the Ten Commandments. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema. The Lord is one. So this is a statement of monotheism. There is one God. And this statement stood against all the surrounding cultures. The pantheists, the polytheists, religions that said that God is everything and everything is God or that there are many gods. No, the most distinctive thing about the Jewish nation was their belief that there was one and only God, one God, who must be worshipped. So, you believe that God is one, you do well. Okay, we're monotheists, great. But here's that sting again. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah, you're jolly right they believe. They may spend their whole time trying to persuade humans there's no God or that he isn't good, but they themselves are in no doubt. And so, believing in the one God 
That is not enough to show that a person is truly saved, truly changed, truly belongs to God. No, a transformed life is just that, a life that's been changed, which is different, which plays by a new set of rules. Not the rules of law or the rules of sin, but the rules of grace. Where everything has been forgiven and our grateful, cleansed hearts lead us to obedience and love. Love towards God and love towards all human beings. Skip to verse 21. 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So the story of Abraham is this incredible story of faith and obedience. If you're not familiar, it goes a bit like this. Abraham had a long history of believing, trusting, and following God. And bear in mind now that Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have the benefit of an Old Testament and a New Testament. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. Even though Abraham did not have those things, which essentially we rely on to undergird our faith, he still trusted God. And God promises to Abraham that he's going to make him the father of many nations. And you know, Abraham hits the age of 99, and his wife's now 90, and he's thinking, God, you're leaving it a bit late for this father of nations thing. 99 and 90. Can you imagine having a newborn baby in your 90s? We had our boys in, the th- in our 30s, and it nearly did us in. <laughs> to be fair, Abraham has a bit of a false start. Right? He's not getting the air he expects from his wife, so they both agree that he can try with one of their servants. That must have been an awkward conversation. Sure enough, the servant falls pregnant, has a son, and he's called Ishmael. But God says, he's not the one. Side note. Ishmael goes on to become the father of the Arab nations, which eventually produces the religion of Islam and which is at constant loggerheads with Israel throughout history. Sin has consequences. So back to Abraham and Sarah. God is true to his word. Sarah conceives, she bears a son, and he's initially called Isaac, so God later changes his name to Israel. By this time, Abraham's 100, and Sarah's 91. 91, mind you. Anyway, so far... So good. But Abraham, no doubt, is pretty relieved and would certainly have been thanking God that at least there now appears to be a legitimate way for his promise to be fulfilled. And it's all going well for many years. We don't know quite how many years. It may have been 10, 20, 30. But one day, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, literally. Take him up a hill, put him on an altar, and kill him. It's pretty hard to imagine that, isn't it? all sorts of reasons. I mean, for any parent, that would be unthinkable. You'd certainly be uh, seriously testing that before you accepted it as a word from God. 
But Abraham has this incredible relationship with God and this outstanding faith such that he pretty much goes through with it. And that, even though he must have thought, but God, this is your promise to me. How can I be a father of anything, let alone nations, if I've killed my own son? Well, we don't really know what he thought. Uh, Maybe we can ask him one day. What we do know is that he went all the way right up to the point of plunging a knife into his son when God called out at the last minute, Stop! Goodness. What faith. So you can understand why Abraham's legendary to Christians and Jews alike. God asked him to do something, he was going to do it. Now the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 19, speaking of this, Hebrews 11, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So Abraham reasoned that even if he killed Isaac, God could bring him back. Do you want to take that chance? And so back to James 2, 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. Back in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Abraham's faith pleased God and the evidence of his faith was that he acted in obedience. And Abraham's faith was completed by his works, by acting out exactly what God told him to do. You see, if Abraham, sorry, if God had said, sacrifice your son, and Abraham had said, okay then, but done nothing. There's no faith there. You see the difference? And I don't think it's any more complicated than that. But it's challenging though, isn't it? Do we love God that much? Trust him that much? Definitely something to aspire to. And the great thing is that as we look through the word of God, we see lots of evidence that gives us ground to trust him. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes, right? Romans 8, 28. So trusting God should be easier for us, shouldn't it? Now James wraps up his argument at verse 26 with one final stern reminder. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If we have no spirit, that's it. We're gone, checked out, on our way to the afterlife. If we have no works, if there's no evidence we've been changed, well, the faith that we we thought we had, maybe it's not quite where we'd hoped. But that is not a reason for fear. It's definitely not a reason to panic. And it's not a reason to start conjuring up fake works. Because then we're going back to the two-pence piece, remember? Works from law, not works from faith. No, it all starts with faith. It all begins with gratitude and humble repentance, laying down our lives 
before God. Telling him that today and every other day of our lives we submit to him, we love him, and asking him to change our hearts. Don't force it. He will change us if we let him. I found that repeatedly. Stuck in some kind of sin and can't get out, once I stop trying to be better and just let God have his way with me, that's when the transformation starts. I'm a long, long way from perfect. But for all of us, there's hope. Look around. Look around. Go on, I mean it, look around. (laughs) Don't you see evidence of lives changed by the wonderful power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not experiencing that yourself, please come and talk to us. Talk to me. Talk to anyone here. Talk to your Christian friends. Having Jesus in your life is awesome and a great adventure. God bless you all. We're just going to respond to that now.